It's interesting, we just sang, asking God to uh, knock out the teeth of our enemies. And we laugh because it seems so strange to us, and yet these are the words that God has given to his people to sing. One of the beautiful things about uh, this small little sermon series that we're doing through Matthew 22 here, the last part, calling it the sufficiency of Scripture, one of the things I've emphasized is that every word of God is important. And so one of the things that, uh, that, that we believe is that uh, even words like knocking out the teeth of our enemies is important, particularly if God has given us those words to sing. So I would encourage you, even if it feels uncomfortable, to sing these words in faith and to trust that God has a will and a purpose uh, for us in that. Um, Our passage this morning, Matthew 22, we're looking at verses 41 through 46. It's page number 984 of the Pew Bible. I imagine you've all gotten there as I was talking about Psalm 3. Uh, But let me join you and then we will read our passage. I hear the words of the Lord. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? The Pharisees said to him, The son of David. Jesus said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to God in prayer. Father, we we come before you and we're so thankful for this word. We're so thankful for how Jesus explains himself to us using these words and pointing us back to the Psalms. We ask, Father, that you would grant us great grace to understand this passage that we might know you more deeply and worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Uh, The law of non-contradiction states that two propositions uh, cannot be both true and not true at the same time in the same sense. Let me say that again. The law of non-contradiction states that two propositions, so two things that you say, cannot both be true and not true at the same time in the same sense. So let me give you an example. It's impossible for an object to be both a square and a circle at the same time, right? It's just impossible. Something can't be both a square and a circle at the same exact time. Um, An apple cannot be a red apple and a green apple at the same time. It's either one or the other or some combination, but it cannot be completely red or completely green at the same time. I cannot be here and not here simultaneously. Because I'm a human being, I can only be in one place at a time, so I cannot be both here and not here at the same time. And we all know this is true. Uh, A child can recognize a a contradiction. 
And so when we read scripture and we see how God describes himself, there's one God, yet the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. How are we supposed to understand that? How can God be three and one at the same exact time? It seems like a contradiction. How can Jesus be God, who is infinite, eternal, and unchanging, and a man who is finite, temporal, and who changes? How can Jesus be both at the same time? How can God be in control of everything that happens in life and all things that come to pass and yet hold us responsible for our choices if he's the one who's determined all things? So given the law of non-contradiction, how are we supposed to think about God when we discover things like this in Scripture? Well, one thing we definitely cannot do is just dismiss or ignore one aspect of what Scripture says about God, and that's exactly what the Pharisees are doing. In our passage today, Jesus is the one who brings up an apparent contradiction in Scripture. He does so to show the Pharisees that they have failed to take into account some very important information in the Bible about his identity. And we'll see that there is no contradiction here. It just seems like it. And also, Jesus teaches us here how to read our Bibles so that we can know him truly and we can know him fully as he's revealed himself to us in his word. And so here's our outline for this morning. First, Jesus is the son of David. Second, Jesus is David's Lord. And finally, what that means for us. So first, Jesus is the son of David. If you'll recall, uh, almost two years ago, uh, when we began the book of Matthew, uh, uh, Matthew begins his gospel by introducing Jesus to us as the son of David and the son of Abraham. And this is because uh, Matthew's primary audience are Jews. And Jews had been waiting for their Messiah, who would be the ultimate and final king to save them and usher in all the wonderful promises that God gave to Israel in the Old Testament. And Matthew wants his audience to know that Jesus is who that is. He wants them to know that from the very first line of his gospel, Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is the son of David. Now, in our passage, Jesus has just finished fending off the onslaught of questions from the Pharisees and the Sadducees meant to trip him up, and now he's got a question for them. This is what we read. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. So the picture here is of Jesus later walking up to them and asking them a question, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. Jesus said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now, a couple of reminders here. 
First, Jesus asks, what do you think about the Christ? Remember, the Christ means the anointed one in Greek. The New Testament is written in Greek, which is why this is translated Christ here in our passage. But the way you say the anointed one in Hebrew is the Messiah. So Christ is the anointed one in Greek. Messiah is the anointed one in Hebrew. And Jesus is asking whose son is the long-awaited Messiah? Whose son is the great and ultimate and final king anointed by God who anointed by God who all of Israel had been waiting for? Whose son is he? And they answer, he's the son of David. As if this is the dumbest question they've ever heard in their entire lives. And this is my second reminder. That is the correct answer. That's why I reminded all of us that Matthew began his gospel by introducing Jesus to us as the son of David. And we have to know that's the right answer because you can almost read what Jesus says here as if he's saying that's the wrong answer. When Jesus says, how is it that David in the spirit calls him Lord, it kind of sounds like what Jesus is saying, well, he can't be the son of David because David calls him his Lord. But he is the son of David. And Jesus is just pointing out that he's also David's Lord. Now this seems like a contradiction. How can the yet unborn son of David be David's son and his Lord? It's kind of like saying someone can be in two places at the same time. But just to be clear, Jesus is not denying the fact that the Messiah is the son of David. There are hints all throughout the Old Testament that God would send a human deliverer to save his people. It begins all the way back in the Garden of Eden, right after the fall. God speaks to the serpent and says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. And he, the offspring of the woman, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So from the very beginning, immediately after the fall, God promises his people that he would give them someone who would come and destroy the serpent at great personal cost to himself. Well, now in the New Testament age, we know this is Jesus. Later, God promises Abraham, and your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Moses predicts, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Notice the humanity, right? He's going to be a seed of the woman. He's going to be from the offspring of Abraham. He's going to be from Moses's brothers, from the people of Israel. All of these verses are pointing forward to the Messiah. They're pointing forward to the one who would come and save Israel. And now, once Israel is formed into a nation, once David comes to the throne, The identity of this human who would save them starts to become a little clearer. God promises David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, so when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish 
the throne of his kingdom forever. So God promises David that one of his offspring will sit on his throne forever. So from the time of David onward, everyone in Israel understood that this Messiah, this Savior, the Christ, would be the son of David. Then in the prophets, we read about he will, how he will come from the stump of Jesse. Well, Jesse was David's father. This is what Isaiah says. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And then in the book of Ezekiel, God is talking to the religious leaders in Israel, and this is what he says to them. He says, I will rescue my flock, meaning I'm going to rescue my flock from you. They shall no longer be a prey, and I will judge between sheep and sheep, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. And since Ezekiel is writing 400 years after the life of David, when God calls his servant David here, he's clearly talking about this Messiah, the son of David. Micah 5.2 also teaches us that this Messiah will be born in Bethlehem, which is the city of David. So the fact that the Messiah is the son of David is well established in Israel. But what was less known, or not even considered at all, is the fact that the Messiah is also David's Lord. So as we have just seen, it was well established in Jewish theology for good reason that the Messiah would be the son of David. And since the life of Christ was a thousand years after the life of David, the idea that the Messiah could be David's Lord was not even considered. And since Jesus is not denying that the Messiah is the son of David, he's just asking them, have you guys considered that the Old Testament also teaches us that the Messiah is David's Lord? With that in mind, let's read our passage again. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. Jesus said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So when did David in the Spirit call the Messiah his Lord? As many of you know, uh, most of the Psalms were written by David. And in Psalm 110, which Jesus quotes here in verse 44, Jesus, or David says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So there are two things that Jesus is confirming here. That everyone in Israel believed at the time. He's confirming that David wrote Psalm 110, and he's confirming that Psalm 110 is about the Messiah. Both of those things actually have to be true for Jesus' point here to be made, right? Because if David didn't write Psalm 110, all of a sudden, Jesus' argument is out the window. 
If Psalm 110 is not about the Messiah, all of a sudden, Jesus' argument is out the window. So both of those things have to be true, okay? So now we're going to look back at Psalm 110 and see if we can establish that from Psalm 110. So the, it begins, a Psalm of David. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now notice, uh, and I actually kept it here in its versification form, because I wanted us to see that uh, the ESV actually puts a Psalm of David as verse zero. Now why would they include it as one of the verses? Well, here's why. That's considered a superscript, okay? And a superscript was added by editors later. So what happened is David wrote the psalm. At some point later, an editor came along and he assembled all of the psalms together in the current form that we have them. And then they went through and they added superscripts into the psalm that uh, tell us who wrote the psalm. Sometimes they add... Uh, uh, contextual notes, like saying, you know, a psalm of David at the time of Absalom, blah, 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 blah. Sometimes they add, um, oh, this psalm is to be sung in the, in the form of a miktam, or whatever that is, we don't know. Uh, but it helps, them, it helps them know what, uh, what musical elements went along with the psalm at the time. And so most conservative scholars would say that these superscripts are part of the inerrant text of the Bible. And I would actually agree with that, and here's why. If the editors who formed the um, Psalms into our current form, if they did that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which we believe they did, then, the, then also the editorial notes like this that they added must also have been done under the uh, power of the Holy Spirit as well. The other reason we know this Psalm was written by David is because Jesus in our passage affirms that Psalm 110 was written by David in the Spirit, meaning under the influence and the power of the Holy Spirit. Not only that, but everyone at the time of Jesus believed that Psalm 110 was written by David, okay? So David writes, the Lord, and we see capital L-O-R-D there, and I've said this before, but I'll say it again, underneath, anytime you ever see capital L-O-R-D in the Old Testament, Underneath that is the name Yahweh, the covenant name of the God of Israel, the name that God gave to Moses when he introduced himself to Moses at the burning bush, right? So that's God's covenant name. So we're told, the Lord says to my Lord, which is also the word Lord, but in Hebrew, that's the word Adonai. That's just the basic Hebrew word for Lord, okay? So Yahweh says to my Adonai, um, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool, okay? So Yahweh, the God of the Israel, who entered into a covenant with the nation of Israel, is talking to David's Lord, and this is what he's saying to him. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your, meaning the Messiah's mighty scepter, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So Yahweh is commanding David's Lord to sit at his right hand and rule in the midst of his enemies. 
He's telling him that one day his people will offer themselves freely to him wearing holy garments. And this will all for sure happen because Yahweh has sworn it will happen and he will not change his mind. So David's Lord is obviously a king with great power, but here we find out he's also a priest, but not a priest like the Levites. He's a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And we don't have time to get into this, but Melchizedek was an obscure figure that Abraham met all the way back in Genesis, okay? And now David speaks again, and this time he's talking directly to Yahweh about the Messiah. In verse 5, he says, the Lord is at your right hand, so the Messiah is at your right hand, Yahweh. And he will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. Can you imagine singing that? He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So this great and powerful king, who's also a priest, whose people are offering themselves to him freely in holy garments, one day this great and powerful king will shatter kings in his wrath. He'll judge the nations, filling them with corpses. This is the Messiah. There's no doubt. No one else has this position, this power, this eternal nature of his kingdom. It's only, this only could be the Messiah. And everyone in Jesus' audience also thought this was the Messiah. And they all believed David wrote this. They just missed the fact that David calls him his Lord. So Matthew tells us, and no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. So Jesus just shuts them up. They couldn't answer him. They stopped asking him questions after this. They basically gave him their best shot, their most confusing theological questions. Jesus handled them all. Then he asks them a question and discredits them all which is what they were trying to do to him. So, what does this mean for us? Okay, three things. This teaches us how we got our Bibles. It teaches us how to read the Bible. And this teaches us how to do theology, okay, which is knowledge of God, basically. Okay, so it teaches us how to know God how to read and understand our Bibles, okay? So, how does this teach us how we got our Bibles? Notice in verse 43, Jesus said to them, how is it then that David, in the Spirit, calls him Lord? So Jesus affirms two things here. First, that David wrote the psalm. David really did sit down and write this psalm out. But David wrote the psalm in the Spirit. So every word of Scripture is written like this. By a human being, under the influence and the power of the Holy Spirit. Later, the Apostle Peter says this. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So it matters that David wrote it for all of the reasons we've just said, 
right? David had to be the one to write this because when he says, my Lord, when he uses that first person pronoun, that matters. That helps us know that David considered this person to be his Lord, and we already know that this person is also David's son. So the fact that David wrote this really does matter. It matters that he was using his own experience, that he was writing from his own perspective. It matters that David is the one speaking. And yet in Psalm 110, he calls him my Lord. At the same time, David writes under the power and the influence of the Holy Spirit so that we know he was speaking from God as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit, as Peter tells us. And this is what all of Scripture is, friends. Yes, it was written by men, but it, was all, but it also is the very words of God. And we can fall off the horse on either side, right? Some people say, oh no, the Bible is purely a construction by men. Or they can fall off the other side and say, oh no, this is a purely divine document. And this is what you get from other religions like uh, uh, Mormonism, right? Supposedly, it was all just divinely given to uh, um, the prophet Joseph Smith. Or, or uh, Islam, uh, their, their writings were divinely given in a cave um, to Muhammad. But scripture has a historical man-made component to it right? And that helps us because we can look back at history, we can look at all these things, but it also has this divine element to it as well. Um, Paul tells us this, he says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work, right? This is why, this is what we mean when we say scripture is sufficient, the word sufficient just means it's enough. It's enough. Scripture is enough to know God. It's enough to know what God requires of us in this life. And all of it was breathed out by God. It came from God through the Holy Spirit, through men like David sitting down and writing their own words under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And then Scripture teaches us. That's what Paul says here. It teaches us about God, about ourselves, about this world we live in, what this world is really like, what's wrong with it, how it got that way, what's wrong with us, how we can be saved. All of that can only be found through revelation from God in Scripture. And then Scripture reproves us, which just means it rebukes us. It takes, us, takes our thinking and our actions and it says, those are wrong. And then it corrects us. It tells us how we ought to think and how we ought to live. It trains us for righteousness so that the man of God is complete, which means we lack nothing to be able to live as God is calling us to live. Okay, this passage also teaches us how to read our Bible, okay? So first, we read our Bibles knowing what they are and how we got them, which we just talked about. The very words of God breathed out by God from the Holy Spirit through the writing of men like David when the Bible speaks, it really is as if God himself is speaking to us. You, you can get up in the morning and you can read your Bible and then you can go to work and you can tell to somebody, you can tell somebody, God spoke to me today. Which they're gonna hear you saying, I had this mystical experience where God spoke to me, but, but really you were 
reading his words, and so he really did speak to you this morning. So when the Bible speaks, it really is as if God himself is speaking. And that means every word must be taken seriously. If it's possible to know who wrote a book of the Bible, that's important information. Just like it really matters that David wrote Psalm 110. It matters that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, that Isaiah wrote the book of Isaiah. And it matters that Paul wrote all the letters that he signed. Because if it says, I, Paul, signed by Paul, and Paul really didn't write it, then there's a lie built into Scripture. So it matters that Paul wrote those. When we're studying a book of the Bible or a psalm, if we can know the information, it's usually very important to know who wrote it, why they wrote it, who they were writing to, when it was written. All of that can be significant in trying to understand what the passage is saying. Now, sometimes we don't have some of that information, like the book of Hebrews. We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, but no theology in Hebrews is dependent on knowing who wrote it. Like in Psalm 110, our theology is dependent on knowing that David wrote it, but that's not true for the book of Hebrews. This also teaches us that grammar matters. The fact that David says, the Lord said to my Lord, instead of the Lord said to the Lord. Do you see how that would radically change everything? Because it tells us something, right? It makes a world of difference, the fact that David considered the Messiah to be his Lord. Finally, this teaches us how to do theology. So when we seek to understand who God is and what he requires of us, we must take into account all of the relevant scripture. Every misunderstanding of God can be traced back to a failure to read all of scripture and take all of it into account. If we say, well, the Messiah is the son of David, well, that means he can't possibly be his Lord. Now we're in trouble. What God requires us to do is to wrestle with both of those realities. How can he be David's son and David's Lord? If we say for some reason that he can't be David's Lord because he's David's son, that means we have to deny that David wrote Psalm 110 or that Psalm 110 is about the Messiah, which would mean Jesus is wrong here. That can't be the case because he's Jesus. Or it means that we have a Messiah who is only human. No, somehow he's both. And that's what Jesus wants the Pharisees to wrestle with here. He wants them to wrestle with the fact that the Messiah is both the son of David and his Lord. Later in the book of Romans, Paul writes this. This is the very beginning of the book. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Notice again, Paul assumes our way of reading the Bible here. He says that God is the one who promised it, meaning God wrote it, but he wrote it through the prophets concerning his son. So this person is God's son who was descended from David according to the flesh. And he was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness 
by his resurrection from the dead. You see, according to his human nature, Jesus is the son of David, but according to his divine nature, he is the son of God. We're told in the Gospel of John. This is chapter one of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the word. Okay, well, who's this word? John's gonna tell us. The word was with God, so he's God's companion. And the word was God. Okay, so he's God's companion and he's God. He was in the beginning with God. Later on in verse 14, and the word, right, who was with with God in the beginning, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So this word was with God in the beginning and the word was God. But then the word became flesh and dwelt among us and John saw his glory and his glory was just the kind of glory that you would expect of the father's only son. You guys, this is amazing. This is, he's God's companion. He's also God. He's also the son of God. He was with God in the beginning and, and we gotta figure out how to put all these things together and this is theology and this is how we come to know God. This is how we come to marvel at all of who God is and how he reveals himself to us in scripture. So he's David's Lord because he is God's son who was with God in the beginning. He's always been at the right hand of God. But he's David's son because he became a human. He took on flesh. He became one of us. Paul tells us this, have this in mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held onto, but emptied himself, how? By taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. The writer of the Hebrews tells us, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. He's fully human, just like us. He has a human will, a human soul so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the order of Melchizedek, in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Friends, he is David's Lord. He is a king full of power who rules in the midst of his enemies. He is the king who will shatter all other kings on the day of his wrath, and he will execute judgment on the nations, filling them with corpses. And his people will offer themselves to him freely wearing holy garments because he is also David's son. He was made like us in every way so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for our sins. Now that word propitiation is a big word And it basically just means he bore the wrath of God in our place. He made propitiation. He atoned for our sins. He washed and cleansed us of our sin because he paid the propitiatory price for our sins. He suffered in our place so that we could worship him freely in holy garments, our robes of righteousness, if you remember from a couple weeks ago. So as David's Lord, Jesus was powerful enough to save us. As as David's son, Jesus was one of us, so he could save us. 
So the Pharisees were waiting for a human king to save them from the Romans, and God gave them a divine king who was also a priest to save them from their sins so they could worship him freely in holy garments. And if they would have read their Bibles, they would have known who to expect. They, they would have known they were looking for a king who was David's Lord too, and his son. But because they were only looking for David's son, they missed out on who Jesus really is. And it's not a contradiction. The Pharisees just didn't have the needed information to sort it all out, right? In the sense of his humanity, he is David's son. In the sense of his divinity, he is David's Lord. And they should have trusted that 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 was true, even if it seemed like a contradiction to them. And it's only when we wrestle with these apparent contradictions that we come to know God as he has revealed himself in Scripture. We can never fully understand how Jesus is God and man at the same time. But that he is God and man is clearly taught in Scripture and necessary for our salvation. And it's not a contradiction. We can never fully understand how God is one God and yet the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. But we see in Scripture that God the Father sent God the Son to save us, and that God the Father and God the Son sent God the Holy Spirit to convict us of our sin and assure us of God's love for us in Christ because of everything that Christ has done for us. And the fact that God is in control of all things that come to pass is is very comforting because that means there's a good God behind the wheel of this car that we call life, that sometimes feels like it's spinning out of control. Yet at the same time, we know we will have to give an account to this God for all of the freely chosen choices that we make. But when we give an account to this God, we will do so robed in his righteousness, offering ourselves freely to him in our holy garments, knowing that by faith and faith alone, he has rescued us from our sin, And that this wrath that Jesus is going to pour out on the nations we see in Psalm 110, we are saved from that wrath because we are his children. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and and we see that every word of Scripture is important. That all of these grand ideas that we can sit down and through the, the power of the Holy Spirit, We can understand who you say you are so that we can worship you rightly and truly and live a life in accordance with who you are and who you've called us to be. I pray, Father, that you would give us great encouragement and confidence in this truth, that we can glory in your Son and in your power and in your love for us that we don't deserve, that he purchased for us on the cross. In his name we pray, amen.